I often challenge people to create the future that they envision. So, what does it take to envision the future and to effectively convey that vision? Creativity and storytelling. In this episode, I speak to dystopian filmmaker and author Diana Wink about the creative process and how each of us can leverage our natural storytelling ability to help shape the future. Because we as humans, we always search for the deeper meaning and the connection between things. So we make up these stories as we go. And this is why storytelling actually works, because it's a part of our everyday life. Diana Wink describes herself as a mountain child from the depths of Middle Asia, striving to kidnap her readers into make-believe worlds in her dystopian novels on dfwink.com. She blends the borders between the past and the future and masters her own curiosity. Ready to dive into your own curiosity and leverage your own natural storytelling ability to help shape the future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Diana Wink, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about you? Yeah, sure. So I studied filmmaking. So I'm actually a freelance filmmaker, but I also write. Yeah, I'm about to finish a dystopian trilogy. And I'm also a blogger. I have the uh, page storyartist.me where I teach people uh, how to write stories and how to make a living writing stories. And I'm also a mom and I live in Germany. Fantastic. So a dystopian author, a lot of people <laughs> might hear that and think, wow, I wonder what she's writing. But what's really interesting is I think a lot of us can actually relate to that type of thinking in our current environment. So tell me a little bit more about what's inspired you be to become an author of uh, dystopian novels. Yeah, sure. So Actually, I love dystopian books. I'm a dystopian reader. I think this is the first step why I decided to write dystopian books. Uh, but I also like the way uh, dystopia talks about our society. It brings out who we are as people. It plays out in the future, but it actually is always is a statement about the current society. Uh, and that's what I love about it. So you can kind of fantasize about stuff. You can bring in futuristic stuff and technology, but at the same time, make a statement about the world as it is today. Yeah. So you had mentioned to me before when we spoke that you've done a lot of research about the future. So obviously that's been a very important topic to you. Yeah, sure. I'm kind of a futurist. So I love futuristic stuff, especially when it comes to technology. I always read Singularity Hub and you know, I uh, I think it's very important to walk with the developments of the future and not fight them because we cannot do anything about them. So we have to embrace the tools and embrace technology and try to make it safe as much as we can and work with it, basically. And I think there are so many exciting possibilities out there that technology can bring us, along with the dangers, of course. That's why I'm a dystopian writer, because dystopian, we're always seeing the doom in things. But as a person, I'm actually quite positive about the development that comes with it. So yeah, let's let's go there. So what makes you optimistic about the future? Uh, so yeah, I think there are some quite amazing tools, at least for me as an author, that IA is developing into um, a tool that we can use for now, a tool that helps us create audiobooks, for example, with the voices, Deep Zen, 
tries to replace human narrators. I don't think they will replace human narrators, but they will help to transform uh, books into audiobooks that wouldn't be transformed without it because people don't have the money, basically. I love the technology of voice search and Alexa and everything, the convenience that comes with it, basically. Uh, translation, all the possibilities that we could have with in t- real-time translation if we go, if we travel places and we can speak the language because we have the translator, for example, in our ear. Um, yeah, everything that comes with it. I think it's making our life more convenient and more much easier, and that's what I love about it. And also the health possibilities. So it's helping people who otherwise would have died, for example, who have diseases to be healed and to live longer, which I think is very, very exciting. Absolutely. It'll be really interesting to see the trajectory that takes. And even the things that we learn in relation to healthcare in our current time uh, dealing with a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is one of the major, major advantages of technology. And I'm really glad to be living in that time because if you think about it, like, I don't know, a uh, hundred years ago or something, people would die of simple diseases that we ha- that we don't have to die of, basically. And I have a small child and I think about all the dangers that were out there for small children and they died in a young age. And I'm so glad that we don't have that anymore. Yes, Absolutely. And so now I've got to ask you the question, of course, that any dystopian author would probably be able to to discuss all day long, which is what are your concerns about the future? Yeah, so obviously, I think it's with every new thing that comes into our world that it can be used for the good, but it also can be taken and used for the bad. Take, I don't know, energy or Whatever, you know, every new development can be misused and people do that. And this is so sad. Um, But I think where we have a massive lack is safety because the um, technology is developing so fast that we cannot, we just don't manage to get safety to where it needs to be to make this technology safe. So technology can backfire. People can use it to their advantage. Let's say the Internet of Things. It's it's basically a term for everything that is connected. So people say that in the future, we will have like every object will have their own IP address and everything will be interconnected, which is cool. But it can also backfire. So if when somebody wants to rob you, they will just go, they will hack your apartment basically they will open your door they can i don't know switch off the light they can do everything uh and just by hacking your internet of things your apartment or let's take deep fakes um i actually watched uh, i listened to an episode of sleepwalkers podcast i don't know if you know that one i don't but i'll check it out it's so good it's a major podcast on ai basically and they have an episode on deep fakes and they uh made like an experiment and they take one of their hosts and they transferred it into a deep fake and they let the ai call her i think it was her cousin or something and she uh, trying to get out the her credit card number and it was so interesting because at some point she she got it that it, something was wrong about this voice and something didn't match up but i think in in a couple of years time it won't be that easy to distinguish between a deep fake and the real person right and i know i've read a lot of articles you know on that topic about how deep fakes will get better and in our current world of course people 
click fast or don't click at all, right? So if they see a picture, they see a headline, or even a short video that is a deep fake, it could be, you know, very problematic for, um, you know, spreading disinformation. Yeah, and I think this is also one thing that concerns me. And this is why I love dystopian fiction, because I think this is something you can explore in that fiction. And something that concerns me is the fact, what it, will it do to us as humans? You know, for example, if we have like in Ready Player One, you have this VR world where people are just getting lost in and people lose their connection to the real world, basically. And they just live in this VR, in the virtual reality. And, you know, all of these things, I look at my child and I think, okay, how there are things out there that I was never faced with as a child. And this is something that actually worries me. What will it do to us as humans? What will it do to our humanity, basically? Right. Absolutely. So you had mentioned before about the pros and cons, let's say, of the Internet of Things. Yeah. So one of the things that I've also read about for the future, one of the things that actually folks are working on right now is neural links, right? So yeah. being able to connect people's brains together through the Internet. Um, how do you feel about that? I actually have this in my uh, trilogy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they live in a world where the brain is connected to the Internet. I don't know. It's really, really weird because I think on the one hand, we cannot imagine what it will be like and how our brains will cope with that. But on the other hand, it's kind of like a backdoor, you know, that people can enter through to mess with your brain because like every internet connection can be hacked. It can be used to, to some criminal. Um, and I think this is where it becomes quite dangerous, actually. And I don't know if I would like my brain or, I don't know, any part of my body, anything that's biological to be connected to the internet. Yeah, I've had the same thought. I think there probably are some valid applications. So for instance, people who have neurological conditions. Yeah. Potentially, it could be, and you know, it could open up new treatments for folks that have those types of disorders. But when I read about people potentially using this type of technology to enhance their own cognition or to, to be able to connect with other people and have kind of like telepathy type uh, communications. I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Mm. And I'm not sure that's what we're made for. Yeah, true. I don't know. On the other hand, I'm very sure that the future that we will have in like 10 years time or 20 years time, we cannot even imagine what it will be like. Because I when I look at my grandparents who lived like in a small village and they haven't seen what a computer even looks like, and now we live in this world where everything, everyone has their mobile phone and smartphone, computers and internet is everywhere. I don't think that when they were young and lived in this village, they even imagined what the world would be like for their grandkids. So yeah, I don't think we can even imagine what's going to happen. And this excites me, but it also scares me. Right. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. As um, we've talked a little bit about your kind of concerns and some of the things that have influenced your work as a parent, what are the things you think about for your child for the future? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm a bit scared about what it will do to her as a person. Um, I, I know that mobile phones and tablets are um, not very good for the development of the brain, for especially for the attention span. That's what I read, at least. Uh, so that, like, if kids are always in the mobile phone and clicking and clicking, that they have a very limited uh, attention span. 
So I try to get her away from technology as much as possible. But I also already see that it's not possible to have it out of her life like completely. It's just not because we're consuming it. We have our phones. We're, it's part of our lives. So what I'm trying to do is teach her actually the, the best way to handle it, you know, to ha- help her cope with all these technological developments and help her see how they can benefit her, but how she can learn not to become, um, you know, their slave. Right. Yeah. I think a lot about, you know, I've got four kids, so I... Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be busy. (laughs) Yeah, I believe that. (laughs) But yeah, I, I think a lot about the impact of technology on their development, but also on the experience that they have in the world. I think it's really interesting at this point in time where that's their point of connection with their friends, for instance. And so they're not seeing their friends in person right now. And I believe that they're having a hard time adjusting to that and have mentioned to me, Mm. maybe for the first time that I can remember, that they are experiencing a lot of loneliness. Mm. And that's that's a tough one to to process just simply because of this point in time that we're in today. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true that people, especially with the pandemic we have now, people are getting even more lonely. And this is very sad. And I when I look at the teenagers, for example, I see that they're really they're some of them at least, they're unable to connect on the human level because they're so used to being in their phone and texting, you know, and they can't have a con- normal conversation. And it's actually, I think there was an experiment that was made that those kids, they lose the ability to read like human faces or, or human signals. And they this is why it's so tough for them to have a normal conversation, basically. Right. And there's, um, so Sherry Turkle wrote a really good book called Reclaiming Conversation. Mm. And in that book, she discusses that problem, how kids or young younger folks are starting to lose that ability to effectively communicate with one another mm. simply because of uh, technology. So using texting, for instance, to replace conversation and also finding creative ways to avoid conflict by using technology. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is where we as parents come in, basically, because nobody else is going to teach them that. They have to learn from us how to, uh, yeah, how to handle this technology, how to have a proper conversation, how to communicate and so on. This is where our role as parents is very crucial. Right. Absolutely. So I should probably circle back to the pandemic because you would think this would be the beginning of a dystopian novel that we're living today. Mm, yeah, definitely. Definitely gives me some stuff to pull from, you know, from my next novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let me ask you that. So if you were to write a dystopian novel that starts with the story we've lived so far, where do you feel that story would end? Oh, this is difficult. I don't know. <laughs> um, because, of course, when I write fiction, there's a lot of drama and everything's over the, over the top because it has to be. We want entertainment. We don't want the real life. Um, but uh, I don't know. It's so hard to tell. Um, but I, like my books, my previous books, they very in-depth. I go into how government is influencing our lives. and I live in Germany, but I actually come from the former Soviet Union. And so part of my ancestors, they lived in the uh, dictatorship uh, in the Soviet Union. And part of them lived in Germany when there was um, a Second World War and so on. So I know a lot of stuff about dictatorships and how all of this worked because 
for once it's my um, my ancestors and on the other hand I'm interested in that um, yeah and it scares me a little bit because I feel like I don't know in this time I feel like I'm disempowered you know what I mean mm, yes I cannot choose I cannot decide what I want to do about this pandemic I have to obey the rules, basically. And this is what makes me feel disempowered. And um, I don't know, and all of this information and mixed information, misinformation to some parts, and you hear that, you hear this, and you don't know what to make of it. And many, many things just make no sense. And um, yeah, I feel like uh, I, for the first time, I start to understand these dynamics of how um a dictatorship can be built very slowly you know i'm not saying this is going to be a dictatorship no i don't think it will because we live through that but i feel like this is how it started like i don't know 40 50 years ago yeah like it was interesting because i kind of i kind of caught little glimpses of of your creative process <laughs> <laughs> which is cool so one of the things that i kind of caught on and, and kind of tied back to futurist thinking is that when I'm assuming that when you write, you do, of course, consider, you know, a dramatic ending or storyline to be able to pull people into a compelling story. But that that is one kind of option that you think about in a projection. What's a possibility that could happen, which is really what, you know, futurists do um, when you think about foresight, because nobody can predict the future but we can look ahead and make potential projections on some of the things that could happen. Mm. And I think it's really interesting is going to those extremes and the type of writing that you that you do um, really does start opening up possibilities for people mm. beyond what they might read, beyond what might be the obvious and really thinking about what could really happen if we go down this path. It's not necessarily going to end in the worst case scenario. But it does help open those possibilities for people uh, when they think about the future. Yeah, I think that's what I, at least what I do in fiction. But I think that's what many fiction writers do, especially sci-fi writers and dystopian writers. We take as much information as we can. So I'm somebody who's doing a lot of research. So I look at all the facts and I also do research in history, in the futuristic predictions, in science and so on. And then I take all of this information and I think about, okay, what's the most interesting world I can make of it? Where can I find the most dramatic point? And uh, also some, I try to find something that I feel that is close to my heart, you know? Yeah, and that's where I try to move the story. And of course, we always go to the extremes because it's exciting. It's interesting. We don't want to read fiction that is, you know, where nothing happens, basically. <laughs> yes. But uh, on the other hand, yeah, these extremes, they just... They show us who in in these situations and where we have the characters and we make them make tough decisions. It shows us as readers who we could be or who we are as humans, basically. Right. Absolutely. So let's talk about the creative process a little bit. And I know that you work with people to help them through their creative process, right, to help them become writers or uh, maybe open up those kind of creative floodgates, I suppose. Is that right? Yeah, it's true. So on my website and also like in real life, I do coach people and help them with courses and blog articles and so on to 
yeah, learn the craft of storytelling and also learn how to incorporate your writing into your daily life and also go beyond that if people want to and publish the work, make a living from the work and so on. So the whole process that I actually am doing myself as a fiction writer, I try to document it and I try to write down the lessons I learned to help those who come behind me to help them not make the same mistakes, basically, and get there faster. So if we've got listeners listening to us discuss potential futures, and maybe they have ideas, maybe they want to get involved in helping to shape the future, what advice would you give them in relation to taking that thought they have and putting it into a compelling story in order to uh, make a difference in the world? Yeah, I think the biggest problem is when people um, I think there was like a survey made and they found out that about 90% of people want to write a book, but actually nearly nobody does write it. Actually, everybody dreams about it. And I think the problem is that we are always saying, uh, I will write it someday. Someday I will write this book or I will write this article or whatever. But we never actually do it because we think we have no time. So I think the first step is to actually accept writing as a lifestyle. It's not something where you just sit down in this one glorious night and you write down the bestseller of your life. You know, this this never happens. It's it's hard work and it's work that is done over the years. And the best time is to start right now. So don't postpone it, accept it as a lifestyle and just integrate it into your daily life. You don't have to write for a long period of time. You don't have to have hours of free time to sit down and write. You can actually write in 15 minutes, 30 minutes a day. Just get up early in the morning for 15 minutes or 30 minutes earlier or just take this time in the evening, for example, or whatever. You can squeeze it in into your daily life. And just write every single day because this is the key to finishing this book, to get becoming a better writer, and to everything else that is connected to creative output and writing. And it, the more you write, like the, if you start writing every day, it will get easier every single day, and you will get better every single day. But if you just put your hopes into this one moment where you sit down and write, you will be very disappointed because when you sit down, you will just be blocked and you won't know what to write and then you won't sit down ever again, you know? But if it's like a lifestyle and you sit down every day for 15, 20, 30 minutes and it doesn't work out today, it's not that bad because tomorrow you have a new chance to do this. Right. And I think there's some truth to that in, in any creative process. And so I do enjoy to write. I also enjoy to paint. So I am an oil painter. Oh, wow. Right. And so I don't always have time to do it, but sometimes I have to prioritize doing it. Yeah. One of the things that I found, yeah, whenever you leverage your creativity, it does open up new thought processes and new and taps into some deep energy. Like mm. I sometimes get so much, not even just joy from that creative experience, but it opens up my mind to other things. And I start to notice things that I didn't notice before, mm. or I start to see colors. I mean, this sounds Maybe this sounds silly if, if you don't paint, but I'm a very visual person. So mm. I, sometimes I actually see colors differently when I've been painting for a long period of time mm. uh, and they're more vivid and they're more defined to me. Um, I'm wondering, you know, when you go through that creative process of writing, if you have a similar type of experience in relation to kind of opening up areas of your mind that really kind of give you some energy. 
Yes, it sometimes happens, but but I think very often we as writers we fight doubt. Mm. As when we write, the first and biggest thought is you know this imposter syndrome, and that you think, okay, who are you even? You cannot write. You're such a bad writer, and all of these thoughts, and you have to fight them like very very often, and almost every single time you sit down to write. But I think when you have written and you sit down and read your work. This is where you're like, you cannot believe that you have actually written it. And this is the first time when you realize, okay, my writing isn't that bad. It's actually quite good. And uh, when you experience that for the first time, this is where the doubt is slowly leaving. And this is where in this everyday process, you find the joy and you start to, you know, rely on your creativity rely more on inspiration rely more you know you have to shut down the inner critic before you can tap into this point of creativity and this is so hard because you're always tempted to criticize yourself you're always tempted to go back and read your work and correct it and so on so i think it takes experience and it takes having you have to figure out this process for yourself to some point and understand what is also the point where you're most creative. For example, some people love to write in cafes. Some people love to write in some secluded space where nobody is there to um, distract them. Uh, some people go on cruise, ship cruises and write their novel there. <laughs> you know, some people like to write with music. Some people like to write with, I don't know, nature sounds. And some people light a candle mm -hmm. or use aromatherapy to be creative. Like we have this famous writer in Germany, uh, Friedrich Schiller. And he's, it, it is sad that he always wrote to the order of rotting peaches interesting <laughs> which is so so strange yeah but he had this odor and it was like a trigger to him so when he smelled it he was always inspired <laughs> you know wow but, <laughs> yeah <laughs> there are there are other writers they're very peculiar like victor hugo he wrote naked you know because he didn't want to be tempted uh, to go out. So he gave his clothes to his servant and he wrote naked until he was finished so that he wouldn't get up and go out and do something else. <laughs> so yeah, very peculiar stuff. And I think we as writers have to find this process. What's the best for us? Where are we the most creative? And then leverage this process. Wow, that's that's interesting. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I've had to find ways, like even just when I paint, to yeah isolate myself and make sure I can focus because um, usually it's, you know, mom, mom, yeah. <laughs> you know, or mom, can I paint with you? Which means I'm not painting anymore. Now I'm helping them paint. <laughs> but I do love to paint with my kids. You don't get me wrong. And it is, is getting started usually the biggest challenge people have when they come to you for help? Uh, I think it's different uh, for everybody. So every writer have like their pitfall uh, all of them are different like for me I don't like the first draft it's so difficult for me but I love um, I love outlining I love this first idea process where I just get the idea and I research and do, I do my research and I collect all this information and outline the story I love that and I also love the editing process but the first draft is like it's the worst thing that can happen to me and I just have to power through it uh, but Every writer is different. Some people find it difficult to do the editing. Some people just don't want to outline or they find outlining very difficult. So they just 
start and go ahead with the first draft because they love it so much. Uh, so it's it's very, very different for everybody. Yeah. And it does take some level of courage and vulnerability to put your creative work out in the world. Oh, yeah, definitely. It, it takes courage and it takes vulnerability, as you said. But I think this is where it really gets exciting, you know, because when you just write and nobody ever sees it, I see it like, I don't know, a work without a spirit, without life. Because I think the moment we put it out there and we give it to our readers, this is the moment where the book comes to life, where the story becomes a living, breathing thing that doesn't belong to me anymore, but belongs to the readers. And they can interpret something out of it and they can take something from it. And maybe it will help them in some way and maybe it will inspire them in some way. This is where the story really becomes a living thing. And before that, for me, the work's just dead because it just lies in the corner. Nobody sees it. So every piece of creativity and creative art, I think, to become living and to inspire others, it has to go out there into the world. Yeah, I love that. That's actually quite beautiful (laughs) when you think about how we connect. And I can relate to to that too because I um, love to read and I read all sorts of books. And so I actually read more probably nonfiction than fiction. But when I read a good fiction book, I definitely relate to what you're saying about feeling connected or even just some to some extent feeling like you're either an active observer in the story or a part of the story somehow. Mm. Um, and those are the most powerful and compelling stories because you feel you feel it. You don't you're not just reading a story and learning about a story. You're actually feeling something, yeah. feeling maybe a relation or like a a connection with the characters mm. of the story and understanding the peril or understanding the challenge or understanding the victories, you know, that they might have in the story. So yeah, it's it can be a very powerful experience to read a very good fiction book. Yeah. And I think this is the power of storytelling. And this is why I'm so excited about it, because it's actually a language everybody speaks. And it's also something that is so it's just we're wired for storytelling basically it's so deep down in our core that everybody can relate to a good story and storytelling is always about emotions always it never uh, or very rarely is about some information like you said about rational thinking it's always about emotional connections and this is why i love storytelling so much because it can connect people in a way i think nothing else can Right. And I think there's also something compelling about telling real stories or maybe stories about your own life in a way that that can be compelling and create connection with other people and things that we could relate to or common experiences or, you know, simple empathy uh, for one another. So, yeah, storytelling, super powerful. Yeah. And I think we tell ourselves stories all the time. We just don't realize it. Every single day when we get up, when we experience stuff, we constantly tell ourselves stories in our mind we make them up for us we because we as humans we always search for the deeper meaning and the connection between things so we make up these stories as we go and this is why storytelling actually works because it's a part of our everyday life absolutely boy that could be a whole another topic in itself the stories that we tell ourselves (laughs) (laughs) some of those are good stories some of those are are fiction stories yes true a lot of them probably are fiction stories based on our own bias but what's really interesting though is if you challenge yourself um yeah what what is the point of the story right what are we getting out of this what are we learning and if you think about 
your life and what you're experiencing as a story and what you take out of it. I think that's one very interesting way people can think about, you know, again, if this were a dystopian novel we're living right now and we're watching the story unfold around us in very odd and unusual ways, mm. uh, we can start thinking about what would, where would we want the story to end? Where would, we, where would we want ourselves to be or where would we want ourselves to go as characters in this story? Uh, and, and where might that lead us into the future? Yeah, so if you think about it in storytelling terms, you always have the hero of your story and you want him to change in some profound way so that he can reach his goal and become a better human. So if we think about it in these terms, we can... Uh, because I think this this whole thing that is around us, this pandemic, we cannot do anything about it as people. So we just listen to these news and we see all of this stuff, but we feel we're powerless about this. So what we can do is try to change something that we can change. So help other people change their characters, try to see ways how we can change what like you said what we can learn from this experience and how we can become better people from that and how we can just analyze ourselves you know are we what are we doing right now are we just panicking are we becoming aggressive uh and are we just very very negative about this and if we are what can we change to become better to grow from this crisis personally instead of you know, just being sad or lonely or depressed or angry with the situation because we cannot do anything about it anyway. Right. We definitely can't do anything about the the, the larger factors or the larger environment around us. Uh, but there's things that we can do within our own lives to learn from this experience, but also think about um, what we can do to change or shape the future. Yeah, so all of us, we have like a circle of influence, things we can change, like with our family, our neighbors, people around us. And this is where we can actually become better and where we can try to make a positive change. And uh, this is where what we should, I think, worry about and think about more. And this will make us feel more empowered in this crisis. Right. Yeah. One of the things I always say, uh, is go on and go help shape the future. I really do want to encourage people to use their own kind of inspiration, their own strength, their own, you know, their own knowledge, their own skills to be able to help shape the future that they envision for themselves and for others and not let people feel like they are, as I say, in a boat with no oars, um, heading down to a future that's defined by other people everybody has the opportunity to get involved in helping to shape the future. And that's something that we don't wait until the future to do. That's something that we start thinking about and doing things about now. Yeah. And I think this is so important. Like all of the, th the things we talked about already, if we are parents, we can shape the future by teaching our children and grandchildren. Um, but we can also change the future by writing, for example, by writing down our thoughts and our um, stories about the future. And uh, it's it's really, really interesting how the readers react to the stories. So when I got my books out there and I started uh, to receive reader emails, it really struck me. And also the first reviews, you see that people actually care. And the, the books that you write, the stories that you write, they really influence them in some way. And this is where it starts to get, get interesting and where you see, okay, 
the things I write, they can make a difference, even if they make a difference in one single person's life. But they do make a difference. And I think this is where we, what we should focus on, like you said, uh, shape the future, shaping the future with our personalities, with our unique outlooks um, on this, uh, around the circle of influence that we have and using the possibilities that we have. Absolutely. So I can't think of a better way to, to end this episode than, than that statement. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> so Diana Wink, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was so interesting. Opportunities abound to help shape a better future. And you have the ability to leverage your creativity and inner storytelling ability to do just that. Diana mentioned how her books take life when they are pushed out into the world, when the stories are no longer hers, but belong to the readers. Think about what you want to change, what compels you to action, whether it be the environment, healthcare, poverty, famine or social justice through movements such as Black Lives Matter. Your stories and the emotional connection that you create through those stories can help you connect to others in order to inspire real action. At the end of the day, creativity and storytelling help us build strong connections between us. Imagine the impact you can make through those connections. Imagine the impact we can all collectively make by working together. And now is the time. So go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about the amazing work of Diana Wink, including how she can help you find your creative side, visit storyartist.me, where you can find her free ebook, Eight Things Successful Writers Do Every Day. Learn from Hemingway, Grisham, and George R.R. R. Martin. You can also find more information about her novels by visiting dfwink.com. That's dfwink.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then. Hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.